This is the EFCA Theology Podcast, built to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. On this episode of the podcast, we share a breakout session from the 2015 EFCA One Conference by Dr. Constantine Campbell called A Biblical Theology of Work. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Americans are working harder than ever. Every study shows that, in fact, Americans work harder than anyone in the industrialized world. With less vacation time, longer work days, they're retiring later and later, and Americans are spending more time doing work than any other activity, including sleep. Some people love their work, of course, but some people hate their work, and there are many somewhere in between. And in the church, there is a deep confusion about work. Is it good to work? Why should we work? How does work and faith relate? Will my work last? Or is it kind of meaningless? We have three sessions together over, the, over today and tomorrow. And the goal of the, these three sessions is to explore a robust biblical theology of work and faith, to explore the relationship between faith and work in a pastoral setting, and to explore how this affects our ministry to workers. The goal of this session, though, is to take that first step to look at a biblical theology of work. Now, I have to say there's no way on earth we can cover everything the Bible has to say about work, and nor would that be desirable. What I want to do, though, is give you some of the highlights that I think Well, I've tried to select in order to provide a a framework of what we might think about work from a biblical point of view. So this is my uh, outline. It may look a little intimidating, but I'm not going to spend too long on each point. I'm going to kind of move through for quick impressions and try to bring it all together at the end. But the aim is to outline the framework of the Bible's teaching about work. So first, looking at Genesis 1, then Humanity is made to work, Genesis 2. Work is messed up, Genesis 3. Ordinary work, Proverbs. Work is futile, Ecclesiastes. The parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Paul and work, 2 Thessalonians 3. That should be. The work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Achievement and the sons of God, Galatians 3. And then final conclusion. Okay. All right, let's get into it. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning... God worked. In the first chapter of the Bible, we see God presented as a designer, as a worker, and as a creator. So he makes the heavens and the earth, verse 1. He creates the light, verse 3. He forms the sky and the earth, verses 6 to 10. He makes vegetation, 11 to 12. He establishes the heavenly lights, 14 to 17. He creates living creatures in the water, in the air, and on land. 20 to 22. Finally, God makes man and woman in his own image, 26 to 27. And after all this work and activity, God rests from his creative work in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. But the principles about work that we can see from this chapter are right from the beginning of the Bible, we see that work is good. It is a thing that the Creator God does, He works, and He has intention. Work is not, as some workers may feel, a result of the fall. It even pre-exists the creation of humanity. 
So therefore, work is good. And we see that rest is also good. We also see that God is an achiever. He achieves certain outcomes from his work. And through chapter 1, there is a pattern that is repeated. Let there be, followed by, and there was, and it was so. So we see there that God has intention, he works, and then he brings about the fruition of his intention. So let there be light, and there was light, verse 3. Let there be an expanse between the waters, verse 6, and there was, and so on and so forth. This is a pattern of achievement. Work is not just spinning your wheels. When God works, he accomplishes things. We see also that God assesses his work. I think this is important to notice. After creating the light, he saw that it was good, chapter 1, verse 4. And we see that in verse 10, verse 12, 18, 21, 25. And then after creating man and woman, he says, it's very good, in verse 31. So God sets out to accomplish certain goals. He completes them, and then he evaluates them as good standing back from his work and saying, job well done. So we see a pattern of intention, production, and then evaluation. But of course, we know that humanity is introduced to this scene. And God assigns a work role for the man. Genesis 2.15 says, God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And to watch over it. Just as God is a worker, so his intention for humanity is to work. And in part, that is what we are made for. And again, we see that work, therefore, is inherently good. And it is a good part of human existence. However, of course, God's design becomes warped. The man and the woman, they question God and then they reject God's good intentions, which creates a rift between God and humanity. And Genesis 3 casts an overwhelming shadow over the rest of human history. The consequences of the fall are spelled out in this passage, Genesis three seventeen to 19. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Painful labor, notice. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. We see that the consequences of the fall for Adam are nearly entirely concerned with work. Work will become much more difficult. It will become painful labor. And here we also see the hint of futility. You will return to dust. Your work in the end will come to nothing. Now putting Genesis 1 to 3 together, we see these two things. Work is good. It's reflected by God's own nature. And his intent for us, for humanity. But it has been bent out of shape by sin. And because of that, work will never be the same and becomes a complex problem for us in our human lives. Now we're going to skip a huge chunk of the Old Testament and move straight to Proverbs. 
You'll notice that in this presentation, I'm basically skipping the entire history of the nation of Israel. And, you know, I'd love to talk about how that relates to work. But what we see in Proverbs is a snapshot of life in the kingdom of God. It's a snapshot of Israel's life. And it's a snapshot of the good life lived in the kingdom. Proverbs shows us how wisdom ought to shape our lives and addresses several themes related to work, such as success, achievement, discipline, character. I'm just going to show you some of these. First, success. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright, Proverbs 2, 6 to 7. The one who understands a matter finds success, and the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. 16 verse 20. A house is built by wisdom, and it is established by understanding. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with every precious and beautiful treasure. 24 verses 3 to 4. What we see here and in various other places in Proverbs is that success is treated as inherently good. It is good to succeed. Though there are some qualifications uh, mentioned, such as it's better to be poor with integrity than rich without integrity in chapter 28, verse 6. But in general, success is seen to be a blessing from God. And it is one of the goals of living wisely. We see work and diligence as a theme. Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches, chapter 10, verse 4. A lazy man doesn't roast his game, but to a diligent man, his wealth is precious, 12.27. The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor, 21, verse 5. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of unknown men, Proverbs 22, verse 29. And virtually the whole of Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, praises the capable wife and all her work, discipline and achievements, culminating in verse 31, give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. That's work and diligence. But Proverbs is about Old Testament kingdom living. We don't live in the kingdom of Israel. We live in the kingdom of Christ, the Messiah. It's a different kingdom. It's a new kingdom, though, of course, with continuity. But it means that our priorities are altered in the kingdom of Christ and success is redefined in quite important ways. But nevertheless, however it's understood, success, work, diligence and character remain part of the life of wisdom. Now we come to Proverbs' counterpart, Ecclesiastes. If a Proverbs is about how to live according to wisdom, its basic message is everything will work out fine, generally speaking, if you're not an idiot and you live wisely. Then you have the book of Job within the wisdom literature of Israel, which says, but life's not quite as simple as that, is it? We have unexplained suffering, even if you do live wisely. And then Ecclesiastes basically says, so what? You're going to die anyway. And we have this great text in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 to 9, where Kohelet, the preacher, says, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. 
I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of of cattle and flocks, more than all who were uh, before me in, in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. Kohelet, the teacher, the preacher, has achieved a lot, more than anyone in Jerusalem. And he assesses his achievements. He overtook all his predecessors. He lived according to wisdom. He reaped the reward. But, he says, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Kohelet became a success, but all his achievements in the end are fleeting. They are mist and vapor. And the reason for this, of course, is death. Throughout the book, he grapples with the overarching reality of death. A generation goes and a generation comes. There is no remembrance of those who lived before. All the fruit of your work will be left to another. All come from dust and all return to dust. Death is the great equalizer. It wipes out all achievements. It makes your work irrelevant and it renders you back to dust. So if we think about how Proverbs and Ecclesiastes relate together, on the one hand, Proverbs is saying work is good, achievement is good, success is good. And on the other hand, Ecclesiastes is saying, I did all that, but you're going to die anyway. Ecclesiastes provides a sober qualification to the happy take, the optimism of Proverbs. But both books develop the themes that are developed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Proverbs draws on the order of creation, Genesis 1. This is the way God has made the world. If you live according to its design, things will go well with you. And generally speaking, that's true. But Proverbs draws on the corruption of sin and death that we see in Genesis 3. And those two chapters need to be held together. In fact, they are held together in wisdom literature by these two books. But they need to be held together throughout the Bible as we consider the theme of work. We need to understand work through both lenses of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 at the same time. Well, that's a 15-minute overview of the Old Testament. Now we move to the New Testament, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. This is the last parable in a series about the return of Jesus and the call to be ready for his return. And it deals with the responsibility to serve the master with all your resources. And the final judgment when the master returns brings each servant's action to account. A man goes on a journey. He entrusts his wealth to servants, each according to his ability. And the first servant is given five talents. Now, one talent is worth 
somewhere between $300,000 and $800,000 today. So he was given five of those allotments. That's a huge amount of money. And he put it to work and he gained five more talents. The servant with two talents gained two more, but the servant given one talent buried it. Now, the first two servants, when the master returns, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And faithfulness with a few things leads to greater responsibility. And they are both invited to share in the master's joy. But the third servant, however, tells his master, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. And Jesus says this man is thrown into the outer darkness. It is a sobering parable, to be sure, and complex on many levels. I'm going to skip over the complexity and just give you Craig Blomberg's conclusions. Okay. <laughs> the meaning of the parable has three points. One, God entrusts his resources to his people and expects them to be good stewards of those resources. Two, those who faithfully work for the kingdom and enhance it will be both commended and rewarded for their efforts. Three, those who do not use their gifts and the kingdom resources will be condemned and separated from the very presence of God. Let me offer some reflections on work from this parable. First, the talents don't belong to the servants. They are entrusted. We are stewards. Faithfulness leads to greater entrusting. That is, you do good work, you get more work. But doing nothing is not the right way to handle what has been entrusted to you. We also see from this parable that it's not all work and no play. Because the master says, come and share in your master's joy. That's the reward. Share in the master's joy. We see from this parable that productive work and wise management please God. And using our resources that have been entrusted to us is good. God's pleasure is shared with us in that endeavor. Moving on now from the teaching of Jesus to the Apostle Paul, we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. He says, For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did not make it ourselves an example to you. Uh, Sorry, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working, they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow grow weary in doing good. Some of the Thessalonians are not willing to work, and they're even interfering with the work of others, verse 11. Paul commands them to work quietly, to work without fuss, to provide for themselves, verse 13. And this is serious 
because he says, don't even associate with anyone who disobeys. Verse 14. Some principles here. Again, we see work is good. But we see the negative. Idleness is bad. Work is clearly good from Paul's point of view because he reads the same Old Testament that we read. And he sees that work is a fundamental part of living in the world. Genesis chapter 2. And provision for ourselves, providing our own food, our own resources, is a key outcome produced by our work. So that's Paul's general approach, I think, to work. It's good. Don't be lazy. Provide for yourself. But then we come to this text that is a key one for thinking about faith and work. At the end of his discussion, glorious discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, this is a crucial verse for thinking about faith and work, as I mentioned. And it raises several issues. First, believers are to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord. Second, labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I do believe there is an echo there of the language of Ecclesiastes. Third, but what is the work of the Lord and the labor in the Lord? So let's have a little bit of a look at this. Basically, there are two schools of thought, not wanting to oversimplify, although that's what I've been doing the whole time. Position one says, Paul affirms the value of Christian ministry. That's what the work of the Lord is. That's what labor in the Lord is. Ministry work, that is not in vain. Now, this position is normally understood to elevate ministry work above other kinds of work. Perhaps it even implies that other work is in vain, like the work that's described in Ecclesiastes. And maybe this position could be accused of contributing to a sacred-secular divide in our thinking and in the church. So the people doing ministry, they're the ones doing real work, work that will last, work that is not in vain. And everyone else is really just, well, they're providing food on the table, that's good, but otherwise it's fairly meaningless. I'm caricaturing. But position two says this, All work that believers do is the work of the Lord. So if you're a Christian and you work, then you're doing the work of the Lord. There is no distinction between sacred and secular. Work is inherently good, Genesis 2, and it doesn't need to be Christianized to become worthwhile. So any work done by believers is not in vain. See the difference between the two positions? So one, work of the Lord is ministry. That's not in vain. Two, work of the Lord is any kind of work that a Christian does. That's not in vain. So what does Paul really mean? Well, I'm going to present what I would call a mediating position. The first point is work of the Lord, that phrase, I believe it does refer to ministry. 
some evidence for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10, Timothy is described as working the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy is Paul's co-worker in ministry. Other co-workers, people that Paul describes in that way, clearly are doing gospel ministry. Romans 16, verse 3, verse 9, verse 21. I don't expect you to get this down, but I'm happy to give it to you later. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8, 23, Philippians 2 and 4, Colossians 4. In other words, in a lot of places. Okay. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, those who labor in the Lord are clearly the leaders of the congregation, the ministers, if you like. Labor refers to ministry in Paul's writings, Romans 16, Galatians 4, Philippians 2, and a few other places. Now, think about the context of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has gone into a lengthy discussion of the resurrection body in verses 35 through 57. And he said that the dead in Christ will be raised immortal, imperishable. And then, right at the end of the chapter, he says that your work in the Lord is not in vain. What does that mean in the context? I think it means it's not in vain because... People will live forever. That is, the fruit of your work of the Lord, the fruit of your ministry, will last for all eternity. Through gospel proclamation, teaching of God's word, edification and encouragement, people are found mature in Christ and they become the imperishable fruit of this labor of the Lord, work in the Lord. So Christian ministry, I want to say, is a special kind of work. But why is this a mediating position? Well, what about other work? Is it right to downplay other work, the way that I caricatured position one? The answer, in all our minds by now, should be, no, we should not. Because of everything that we've seen in the last... 36 slides or whatever, right? Our doctrine of creation shows us that work is inherently good. It's God's intention for us. We are to be workers. Proverbs exalts the hard worker, the diligent worker, and praises the one who sees success. It's good. It shouldn't be downplayed just because ministry is a special kind of work. Some people will say, but what about the fact, what about, what if, what if our work is not eternal? I build a bridge, and in the new creation, that bridge is not needed. It's not there. My work does not last. But if you share the gospel with somebody, and that person is converted, well, that person, the fruit of your labor, he or she is in heaven with you for all eternity. Doesn't that mean that Normal work is less valuable or is unimportant because its fruit is not eternal. Two things here. First, there are still eternal consequences for your work. We saw that in the parable of the talents. Okay? Even if the fruit of your work, the bridge that you built, doesn't last forever, the Lord is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. 
for the way that you have managed the resources that he has entrusted to you. That is more important than your bridge. And that commendation has eternal value. Second thing, not everything that is good and important is eternal. Think about marriage. We are told quite clearly that our human marriages do not last into the new heavens. It is till death do we part. And yet there could hardly be a more important issue for us in our lives as Christians. That we are faithful husbands and wives. That we love our wives as Christ loved the church. That we follow our husbands as the church follows Christ. And so forth. So here is an example of something that we, are, we know is not eternal and yet is extraordinarily important. So we shouldn't make the correlation that just because the fruit of your work is not eternal necessarily does not make it unimportant. All work matters to God. And if it matters to Him, it should matter to us. Even if the fruit of your work may not last forever. If we please him in our work, that is what matters for eternity. So, that may be a contentious issue in the room, I'm not sure. We, we can come back and talk about that whole thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 later on. But let me get to my last point. A final consideration to do with work and identity. Paul says in Galatians 3, 26-29... For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, as according to the promise. Main point here is we are sons of God. Happy to say sons and daughters of God. But I think the main point is we share in the sonship of Christ. And so in that sense, uh, there is a place to retain the sonship language and the privileges that that connotes in the ancient world. The fact that Paul says that there is no Jew or Greek, etc. in Christ does not eradicate our differences. But it erases the difference in status between us. We all share the highest possible status as sons of God or as sons and daughters of God. That's the point of this passage, I believe. Our world, however, puts a super high premium on achievement and success and wealth. And it values people according to those things. Our status is determined by where we stand on those scales. But if we are in Christ, our status cannot be measured by those things. Our status is measured by being in Christ, by being sons and daughters of God. And there is no higher status for a human being, apart from the status that the human Lord Jesus holds. This means that whether you're an underachiever or an overachiever, we are all valued members of God's family. We all stand on the same footing before him our status is entirely determined by being in christ and that is true even for people who are not in full-time christian ministry 
They're not a second-class Christian. We are all one in Christ. All right, to bring it together, a few key points. We've seen that work is inherently good, not only in his creation, but in himself. He is a worker. But work, like everything else on earth, has been warped by sin and is corrupted by death. As believers in the new covenant, we need to understand work in the light of gifting and resources, the responsibility of what's been entrusted to us, our union with Christ, the fact that we are one in Him, the resurrection and what that means for the special significance of Christian ministry work, and the fact of judgment that the Lord one day will assess our work and whether we've been faithful stewards or not. Yes, I've tried to argue that ministry is a special kind of work and I don't want to collapse it into all other types of work and say there's no difference. There is a special calling there and that's okay because we also want to affirm the inherent value and meaning and worth of all work. Our status is not determined by work. And at the end of it all, the goal of our work is to bring glory to God and to share in His joy forever. 